Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. Just about anywhere you look, from scripture to historical accounts, to the reflections of theologians and novelists and poets, believers and non-believers alike, there's a whole lot that can be said about Jesus. But the real question is, the real question always is, what say you? That's the question that's at the center of today's message, which is entitled, What Say You?, and is based on Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Who do people say that I am? The question, you've got to believe, had to have come up sooner or later. After all, at this point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples had been traveling with him for quite some time. And along the way, they had seen some amazing and wondrous things. They watched as Jesus cured the sick and the lame, casting out demons. They were there when he restored the life of a little girl that everyone else thought had died. And just a couple of days before, they'd actually helped Jesus to feed some 4,000 people with nothing more than seven loaves of bread and, and just a few fish. Not only this, but they'd been there day by day as Jesus taught uh, all about the kingdom of heaven and moreover, they had firsthand experience in, in how he made those teachings real in the ways that he welcomed in those that most of the rest of the world, most especially the religious powers that be, were so intent on shutting out. And in that regard, the disciples would, could also bear witness to the many circumstances in which Jesus went head to head with the local Pharisees and the scribes. But something else was happening. And the disciples were certainly taking notice of it. With every passing day, the crowds were growing. Everywhere they went, there were all these people. All these many people. People who wanted, who needed to see this man Jesus. People who were clamoring around him day and night so that he might heal their diseases, that he might bless them, that he might show them the truth. And the thing is, at this point, none of these people had any real and clear understanding as to who Jesus actually was. But every one of them certainly had an opinion. So... When in our text this morning that Cindy shared with us, when Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? What's the crowd out there all saying about me? We already know that his disciples had a great deal to share because they pretty much heard it all. Some were comparing him to John the Baptist. Others were saying that Jesus hearkened back to Elijah the prophet. And of course, there, there were a great many people who were calling him a prophet. A prophet who was offering up a true sign of God's return to, of Israel to its former glory. 
And actually, you know, it, it's a fair assessment of how Jesus, as we might put it today, was trending in biblical times. But it turns out, as we read this text today, is that this question, who do people say that I am, is only a prelude to the real matter at hand because of what Jesus asks next. But, he says, who do you say that I am? And though Mark does not specifically point this out, you have to imagine that what follows this question is a moment of profound silence and a great moment of awkwardness and discomfort because, friends, we all know, do we not, that it's one thing to talk about what everybody else is saying about this person who's standing right there in front of you, but it's quite another to say what you've been thinking right in front of that person. So, what we have now are these disciples all looking to the ground and wondering who amongst them might be the first one to speak up. You remember how that was in school? Whether you knew the answer or not, you did not want to be the person to be called on to answer. And as, as though you could make yourself invisible, you just would look at the ground. And that's exactly what the disciples had to have been doing at this moment. Someone, they knew this, someone had to be the one to answer Jesus' question. Someone had to say something here because something needed to be said. <laughs> but who? <laughs> and what? The Reverend Martin Copenhaver, <clears throat> pastor, author, one-time president of the late and lamented Andover Newton Theological Seminary, he actually compares this moment to, quote, how hard it is to be the first to say I love you to another person, to be the first to break the silence with such a large truth. Copenhaver writes that one does not say anything like that for the first time without sweaty palms and a dry mouth. We may hesitate, not because we doubt that the words are true, but because we know how powerfully true they are. And because having spoken the truth, we can no longer ignore its implications for our lives. In other words, to say it is to claim it. It is to make a commitment to the truth of it, which is what makes it all the more monumental that it's Peter, good old Peter, who finally breaks that long moment of uncomfortable, awkward silence with a single, simple, declarative sentence that speaks volumes about his faith and ultimately about yours and mine as well. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, do you see here the difference between the first question that Jesus asks and the second? In the first instance, it's all pretty objective, isn't it? I mean, you looked at all the people out there and all the stories that circulate. You, you collect your data, and then you make an assessment as to the identity and the relevance of this Jesus. In one sense, you know, we so-called postmodern Christians 
tend to do much the same thing in our approach to Scripture. And truthfully, you know, the gospel narrative makes it, if not easy, then at least somewhat logical to make some kind of statement as to who Jesus is. To do it from a biblical perspective. To to speak of him out of a historical context. To look at him from a cultural point of view. To analyze who Jesus might be based on the experiences of those who encountered Jesus in his life and ministry. In other words, there's a whole lot we can say about what the world thinks about Jesus. There's a whole lot about that we can say based on what the culture has and does say about Jesus. But what we get from this text is that ultimately that's not what Jesus is interested in knowing from us. Because the kind of answers that come from a question like, who do people say that I am? It never really requires from us any kind of commitment. Jesus wants something more from us. And when Jesus looks squarely in our eyes and asks, well, what say you? We no longer have the luxury of basking in the comfort of what the late Pete Seeger used to refer to as maintaining our academic objectivity. To quote Martin Copenhaver again, this is a question that demands from us not so much the inside of our minds as the allegiance of our lives. To say it is to claim it as your own, you see, and that's the hardest thing of all. But you see, in the end, that's everything. You know, whatever else one might say about the reason we come together here on a weekly basis, to be here for worship, to engage in fellowship with one another, to to find the inspiration for service out there in the world, to, you know, back in the day, to be able to have coffee and cookies afterwards. In large part, whatever we might say about that, our being together as the church ultimately comes down, I think anyway, to a desire to nurture within ourselves a true and living faith. But a living faith, by its very definition, friends, cannot be static or inert or without any source of power. It needs to have the presence and the power of Jesus Christ in order for it to thrive. In other words, folks, we can talk and sing about Jesus who is Lord and Savior, but the words in the melody will inevitably ring hollow unless we are able to claim him as our Christ, our Lord, our Savior. We can call him Redeemer, Shepherd, or King, as so many others have done for centuries, as we do in our prayer and praising. And we can proclaim along with generations of the faithful, both past and present, that he is, amongst other things, the bread of life, living water, the light of the world, the Lamb, the Anointed One, the Son of Man and Son of God, the Incarnate Word. We can refer to him in a multitude of ways, but it's only, you see, when we confess and claim those names as our names for Jesus 
that they really mean something. Because only then do they reflect the power and the experience of our faith in him. Over the past few weeks, you know, we've been talking a lot about uh, uh, the Old Testament concept and the truth of God and of God's name, that we might know God better. Well, the names that we give Jesus reflect how we know him. And when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? He's wanting to know if what we've seen and heard and experienced in him leads us to know who he is so that we might truly follow him. Therein lies the other part of this morning's reading. You know, what's interesting is that in Matthew's version of the same story, Jesus responds to Peter's confession that you are the Christ by saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, going on to say that it will be upon this rock, that is Peter himself, the very meaning of his name, that his church will be built. And there is, in Matthew's account of this story, real joy in that moment. Mark, however, as you heard, takes a much more somber stance about it. With Jesus immediately, sternly, he says, ordering Peter and the others not to tell anyone about him. And then Jesus goes on to talk in some detail about how the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, to be rejected and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then, of course, when Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him for his words, that is to say to Jesus, now, come on, Jesus, you don't have to say that. None of that's going to happen. Jesus rebukes him, or Peter rebukes him, and then Jesus gives Peter a pretty harsh response and points out very quickly that Peter, for all his passion, was setting his mind not on divine things, but on human things. For those who want to save their life, Jesus says, will lose it. And those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. And that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? If you say it, you claim it. And if you claim it, you own it. You commit to it. And you are going to have to live unto that claim. When you claim Jesus, yes, there is going to be great joy that will make your life brand new. It will bring it a fullness that you have never known before. There will be true and redeeming love that will work in and through your life and change everything forever. But, Here's the thing. In confessing Christ, friends, you also have to live unto that truth. You have to live unto Christ. You will be called to walk the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross, which is the way of risk and self-sacrifice, leading along the pathways of what is right and godly, and ever and always centered on the kingdom that Christ proclaims. And when Jesus asks that, who do you say I am? And you answer, you are the Christ. That is no small assertion on our part. Some years ago, I was uh, approached by a family in the church I was serving at the time if I might offer the sacrament of holy baptism to their newborn baby daughter. 
Ashley, the girl's mother, was a member of our congregation. Her husband, also the baby's father, happened to be of the Jewish faith. But they both assured me, both the parents, that they were very much on the same page where this was concerned. And the father said that he was supportive of their shared decision to have their child raised in the Christian faith. And in fact, planned to stand up with his wife and the rest of the family at the baptism itself. And so as I try to do, we met together beforehand so we could go over together the baptismal service and specifically and especially the vows of faith that the parents would have to make as part of that sacrament. As I've often said in these services, we ask an infant can't make those decisions on his or her own, but what we ask is those, for the parents to take those vows in trust confessing their faith as they vow to live that faith for their child. Okay. Do you desire to have your child baptized into the faith and family of Jesus Christ? That's the first question. I ask the question, check. Will you encourage this child to renounce the power of evil and to receive the freedom of new life in Christ? Again, check. Will you teach this child that she may be led to profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, wait a minute. Do you promise, by the grace of God, to be Christ's disciples? To follow in the way of our Savior? Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait just a minute. Stop right there. Well, you guessed it. The Father couldn't do it. He just couldn't bring himself to publicly make that kind of confession of faith. And it wasn't, friends, so much because he was Jewish. Since in truth, he wasn't orthodox by any means, and he really hadn't practiced his faith in any meaningful way since he was very young. No, it was something much more immediate than that. As he explained it to me, I suddenly realized what it was you were asking. What I was being called to say. What I was being asked to promise. And it was far more than just words. It was real. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It said, you know, that this one question serves as a hinge on which the whole structure of the gospel swings. Jerusalem, the cross, resurrection, even the great commission of the disciples, everything else that is to come in the gospel story proceeds from Jesus asking this particular question. It's the moment in which things become real for anyone who would claim the name of Jesus in their life. And the thing is, dear friends, it's still the question that Jesus is asking you and me today. And how we answer that question serves as the hinge of our lives. How it swings is the difference between merely espousing some kind of philosophy or, and having, on the other hand, a living, vibrant faith. Whether Jesus is just going to be for us another good man confined to the pages of a history book 
or if he's going to be the one who sets the tone for how we live, if he's going to be the one towards whom all of our allegiances and our priorities will naturally flow. So here we are, and here's Jesus, and he's looking at each one of us squarely in the eye, and he's asking us a simple question, but a simple question that makes all the difference. He's asking us, I know what everybody else says, but what say you? What say you? My hope and my prayer for all of us this morning is that we know the answer and that we're ready to speak up with confidence, with joy, and in faith. Thanks be to God, in Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, What Say You?, which was recorded during our September the 12th service of worship at East Church. And let me just say here that if you'd like to hear some of these messages live and in person, and worship together with a wonderful group of folks, we'd invite you to join us at East Church. We gather every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, or if you prefer, you can always find us live online via Facebook Live on our East Congregational Church Facebook page. Either way, we'd love it if you were with us. And with that, we come to the close of this episode of the Love to Tell the Story podcast. I'm Michael Lowry, and I do thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. We'll talk to you soon.